This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Hazel Gaynor, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. Brilliant to be here with you. Yeah, I know. So Hazel is coming to us live from Dublin, streaming through, and I'm just going to introduce her because a very, very busy author, I can see. Um, she's <laughs> <laughs> Hazel is an award-winning New York Times, USA Today, and international best-selling author. She's written eight books, of which two have been co-authored, and we're going to talk about that because I'm so interested in co-authoring. The most recent was a collaboration, which is Meet Me in Monaco, Hazel's fourth coming historical novel, When We Were Young and Brave, set in China during World War II, will be published in North America in October. But we're actually, you're here today because we've got Bird in the Bamboo Cage coming out in September. Is that right? In Australia? That's right. Yes. Yes. So, um, same, same book, different title. Um, uh, okay. Well, um, we're very happy to be first. Hazel was selected by Library Journal as one of the 10 big breakout authors for 2015, and her work has been translated into 14 languages to date. She's co-founder of Creative Writing Events, The Inspiration Project, and I do want to talk with you about that, and lives in Ireland, as we've said, um, in Dublin with her husband and two children, who I understand are asleep, and you're awake talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is asleep. It's not that. <laughs> no, that's right. Tell me a little bit about your career. Firstly, how did you come to writing? Well, I came to writing in a very roundabout way, actually. I, this is a second career for me. I'm writing quite late, possible slight midlife crisis, turning 40. And I had a totally different career. I was from a very corporate financial background and found myself facing redundancy. I had two young children at home and I... Because the financial sector has really copted in a way in in the UK and in Ireland in the last few years, hasn't it? Yeah, well, this was back in 2009. And so, yeah, we did have an economic crisis then and I I thought I was totally safe and it turned out I wasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. But it has turned out to be the most amazing silver lining because... It has given me time to be at home with my children when they were very young. Um, and I started to write. It was quite cathartic, I think. I started to write about this transition from being in the boardroom up and in my suit every morning to being at home surrounded by nappies and plastic toys. <laughs> and, and Had you change. written before? No, I'd never written. I've always loved, as a kid, as a, you know, through my school years, I took English literature to A-level. I've always adored reading first and foremost uh, you know I was a voracious reader as a as a child and I think that's a really important component of any writer um, and I did like creative writing I, I loved those sort of tasks at school and in work actually if there was ever any sort of tricky communications to send out everyone would ask me but I knew nobody I knew no author I knew nobody in publishing I didn't 
ever think that you could become an author unless you had some sort of family connection and but also I I think um it's two mindsets isn't it working in finance and being creative I mean you know the twain shall never meet is that right well talk to me about that I mean was your job really about numbers or you know what was it that it drew you to that career initially and do you think there are any parallels yeah absolutely as you say you wouldn't sort of connect the no. two, the two worlds, you know, a very professional corporate business world and a very creative world of, of writing and publishing. I was actually in the human resources side of law and finance businesses. So I suppose connected with people, um, which as a storyteller, I'm inherently fascinated by. So maybe there was a connection there. But it was really, I think, for me, I had said a few years before, I was made redundant that I would love to write a book, but I didn't know how on earth you would ever start to do that or how you would then get it published. So it was really just, um, you know, a whimsy of something I would quite like to do. But then through the process of writing about my factual experience of life as a mother and blogging about that experience, there was this kind of big explosion of parent blogging at that time, women at home sort of needing to talk about the experience they were going through. And that really unleashed this beast in me, I think, to want to write and tell stories. And I think I found my voice, I found my confidence. I got used to being read and people having opinions about that. Um, And then I started to write a novel, which is under the bed and will never see the light of day. I think every (laughs) author has has one of them, my learning book. (laughs) Hazel, do you know what I call it? I call it practice. It's practice, it is. It was good. good practice. It is. And, and, you know, here I was, two toddlers, basically, and I'd be up at 6am and they'd be driving their little cars and trains under my feet and I just felt this urge to write. So I, I understood what it took to sit and write a book, never knowing what would happen to that. Um, and after I wrote that, I then wrote what became my first book, The Girl Who Came Home, which was based around the Titanic and an Irish group who sailed, a true story of an Irish group who sailed on the Titanic. So I was kind of pulling in my, my love of history, my love of fascination with Titanic, my being in Ireland, and that all came together. And I wrote that book really quickly. I wrote it in six months, initially self-published because I, I couldn't find a publisher. Again, very naive about how to do that. And a year after, it was read by who is now my literary agent in New York and very quickly I had a publishing deal. And How it, was it, it read? How did your agent in New York say it? She read it on Kindle. So it had become, in the year since I'd self-published, it was published in 2012, which was the centenary of the sinking of Titanic. So there was a lot of conversation. There were a lot of resurgence of interest in that event. So I, I was in the right place at the right time as a debut, totally unheard of, naive author. And my agent read it it had got to the top of a historical fiction category she read it she reached out to me on Facebook of all things whilst the chaos of morning breakfast in school was happening and said I've read your book I'd love to speak to you have you written anything else and that was a huge turning point for me it was a a sense of okay somebody who knows this business thinks I can do this and I needed that vote of confidence and credibility and then 
we were often... I think you're the first author I've spoken to that's been published in that way. Talk to me about how you self-published. For those, because there are so many readers um, and writers that listen to our podcast and this could be a way, couldn't it? It could. And I think possibly even more so now. I mean, we're, we're nearly 10 years on from that and self-publishing was still, there was a little bit of snobbery around it back then, I think, about, uh, well, it just, it's sort of a, you know, a graveyard for books that couldn't find a publisher. Mm. Um, but I, I had a couple of friends who'd self-published. I got great advice to have my book professionally edited as if it was being produced through a publishing house and to have a great cover designed because you really, you know, your shop window on Kindle is your cover and obviously then your subject matter. And the two together for me, I think a great cover, Titanic, it, as I said, was released in the centenary year. And did you um, have to navigate the process of that or did you get somebody to help you? I got a cover designer and an editor. Um, and again, I'd just been made redundant, so I had no money. I had no yeah. budget to do this in any way. It was very much from the kitchen table which if anyone is listening, I hope that gives them some hope that, you know, you yes. don't need a huge amount of money to do this. I think ultimately what you do need is a great book. And I was very confident that I'd written a book that I knew I would want to read. And I believed there would be a readership for. Mm. And just with that bit of extra help from people who had done it and, and somebody who could professionally edit to help me tighten the story. And to get it up on Kindle is really a straightforward process of uploading a manuscript and you press a button and it says publish and that's it, you're published. <laughs> and then you go and hang the washing on the line and make a cup of tea. It was, it was quite an interesting... I think you touched on something there too, Hazel. I find the problem that, you know, we get sent lots of manuscripts and I think the problem with self-published books is the lack of editing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's partly as I said, a lack of understanding because I thought once you had written the end, that was the book done. And I now obviously understand that's the first, that's the start. That's your mm -hmm. first draft. That's your self telling yourself the story. You then need to get to work and get some shape and structure and, and, you know, perfect the prose and the narrative and the characters. So that process of editing can never be overstated. And I think that's where sometimes a self-published book can be rushed out and that an author is so excited to get their words out there and there's an easy way to do that that it misses some of that polishing mm -hmm. and that ultimately you want to have a reader who's going to tell their friend read this book you know your word of mouth is so important so I would never put anything out there that and I would advise I do talk a lot about this that don't think of a self-published book as anything other than a book that you would expect to pick up either through an online platform or in a, in a bookstore and you would expect it to be as professionally produced as a traditionally published book. Mm. There are no shortcuts. It's just a different platform. Once you got an agent, did, was mm -hmm. there, and once you, you sold your first book, was it re-edited yet again? Yeah. So I had, as I said, the girl who came home had been out for a year mm -hmm. and within that year I had written what became my second novel A Memory of Violet set around the flower markets of Covent Garden in London inspired by My Fair Lady actually and that book and The Girl Who Came Home were then taken together to HarperCollins so they actually had two books ready to go and The Girl Who Came Home because it had done so well and had such a great fan base really they didn't want to do too much with it 
but we did do a second level or it was probably a, a third or fourth level of copy edit just because obviously they had their own in-house production team and I wanted that I mm. that team and expertise so it did go through copy edit not much was changed actually um and we had a new cover design so the cover that's on the girl who came home that you'll see now is different to the cover I had produced through my effort mm-hmm. um but then they were published in 2014 and a memory violets followed in 2015 um so I had two books out quite quickly and that really helped to sort of establish me as an author of historical fiction without having to wait several years, you know, for a second book to come out. So it seemed painful at the time when I was being rejected by traditional publishers. But I think that urgency to get my Titanic novel out around the anniversary helped to then free my creative mind to produce a second novel, A Memory of Violets, which the two together, I think, were very appealing to an editor mm-hmm. um, who could see that I wasn't just a, a one-trick pony and, and had ideas and a career. Talk to me about how you got into co-authoring because I really, um, I've come across a couple of co-authored book, but mm-hmm. I have never really um, discovered what or, or known about the process. Talk to me about how that came about. Yeah, so this has been a real additional blessing to this whole writing career. I as I said, had my agent in New York and she had another author, Heather Webb, who was just about to also release her debut historical novel. So she connected us because she thought we would just get along to history mm-hmm. eats having the chat. And a year after A Memory of Violets was published, Heather had an idea to create an anthology of short stories, all based around the end of the First World War, around the armistice. So she connected, there was nine of us, nine historical authors who each produced one of those stories. So I started to work with her through that book, which was published as Fall of Poppies in 2016. And we connected and got on so well and had a kind of chat on Facebook and said, would you like to do something again? And very quickly, we felt there was a lot more we wanted to write about the First World War that we'd only touched on the end. And there was so much that we'd discovered in research. And we decided to write a novel that covered the four years of the First World War, but was written in an exchange of letters between two childhood friends, a man and a woman, one of whom was fighting in France, one of whom was left at home. And that became Last Christmas in Paris, which was our first co-authored book and was published in 2017. And we loved the process so much. We wrote Meet Me in Monaco the following year, which is based around the wedding of uh, Grace Kelly to Prince Renier of Monaco and that was published last year and we're just writing our third now so it's, it's amazing we she lives in America I'm in Ireland so it seems like it should be impossible <laughs> have you ever met <laughs> yeah yeah oh, yeah yeah so I traveled to the states for the release tour of Fall of Poppies so the nine of us or whoever could be there went around to libraries and bookstores to talk about that book and I met Heather there for the first time but we were already working on Last Christmas in Paris before we met and we just knew you know when you meet somebody online in any in any event you know you're going to get on yeah and we just have very similar approaches to life to writing we have children we have family so we were very forgiving and flexible with each other's schedule and we work 
five hours ahead of, or behind each other, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. And it's fabulous. We love it. We've learned a lot from each other. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So tell me the process. Do you write chapter for chapter? I mean, how? I mean, I'm really intrigued. Yeah, how? How? (laughs) Tell me how. So in Last Christmas in Paris, I was the character Evie and Heather was the character Tom. And because they were writing letters to each other, we very naturally in our characters wrote a letter, sent it to, so I wrote a letter as Evie, sent it to Heather. We use Google Doc. It's like a live document. She would read Evie's letter and respond in a letter from Tom. So it was yeah. like you've got mail. It was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm loving it. I haven't natural. read it and I'm going to go back and read it. So that worked because then we had a very clear character. So we, we carried that idea on in Meet Me in Monaco. Each chapter is a character and we alternate the point of view between James and Sophie. So that makes the collaborative process easier. But then there are components in the book that we both need to write and we in the end each touch every line every page we co-edit together we have lots of plot discussions we don't always agree on things but we figure it out um, and we just love the creative process so it's been an amazing addition to our writing career to explore different stories and writing. Well, it well. is. And also, too, I mean, you know, often the process of, of writing, and you would have experienced that coming from an office environment to working from home, is very solitary. So it's nice to have a collaboration, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, you do, you need some of that solitary yeah. time, obviously, to, to work on your, on your own stuff. But it is really nice to have somebody who gets it somebody who understands, I mean, we, our poor husbands and partners who we try to tell things about, and it's a really strange career unless you're inhabiting it to understand what it's like. So it's really nice to have somebody who gets it and you can cheer each other on, you can commiserate when things don't go well and and you don't have to over explain it. So Mm. it has been a, a really unexpected uh, part of both our writing careers. We'd never done this before, never intended to. And so far, so good. So yeah, we're hoping fabulous. to keep going. Yeah. Tell me about the inspiration project. So yeah, so this is another writing friends. <laughs> like you don't <laughs> like you don't have enough to do. <laughs> no, yeah, slightly, you know, bored. Yeah. Crazy. I think I think the more you have to do, the more you take on, isn't that the way? For sure. So again, talking about writing being solitary, and I connected to two 
other amazing female authors here in Ireland. Catherine Ryan Howard, who writes crime, and Carmel Harrington, who writes very uplifting women's fiction. The three of us over the years have talked more and more about how isolated we felt, how naive we all were. We all actually started by self-publishing, Connolly. The more we became established, the more successful we became, we felt, what could we do to pay it forward? We've always believed this isn't an exclusive club and you have to have a special card to get in. We lift others up. Um, there's room for us all. And what would we do if we could go back? What advice would we want? So we started the Inspiration Project to deliver that advice to aspiring writers, not so much on the creative writing, but more on the business of writing, demystify some of the the myths or mm. the detail that you're sometimes afraid to ask as an author. I mean, you know, what does a royalty statement actually mean? And how do you get paid? Should I pay tax? Um, What's an advance? And, you know, when do you start earning royalties? How, what yeah. is an advance and how does yeah. that get paid out? And yeah. what are returns in all these terms and, and things that in one way, as a creative person, you're slightly detached from, but you need to understand. So we really wanted to talk about that side of, of publishing as well as give some insight into the editing process. As we said at the beginning, you know, a book goes through many rounds of editing. It isn't finished at the end of your first draft, unfortunately. And some of the the other issues to consider in terms of foreign translations and do you sell world rights or do you retain what does that mean? So that's why we set up the Inspiration Project. And again, have loved connecting with other writers. We've had authors travel to us from Charleston in South Carolina in America. We've had people from Canada. Wow. Um, obviously, lots from Ireland and the UK, from France. Obviously, at the moment, that has become a very online project. So what we're doing at the moment is what we're calling the Inspiration Diaries, which is on the inspirationproject.ie. And it's a monthly short writing tips. So we take a different theme each week and do five steps to, so for example, five steps to become published, five steps to retain your motivation during something like this global pandemic. Um, And we also have three aspiring authors who are producing a short diary into their development and their process and their aspirations to become published. So yeah, so the Inspiration Diaries is, is filling a slot. Until yeah, we get back into I think it. it's such a good idea. Can you just give me that URL again? Because I think it's so useful. And can any authors from anywhere tap into Absolutely, it? absolutely, yes. It's, it's, it's the website, it's theinspirationproject.ie. And anybody can go and look at, you'll see the backlog of all of the monthly Inspiration Diaries to get a little insight into the life of a published author with myself, Carmen and Catherine, Um, some creative writing advice, as I say, sort of practical advice. How do we keep writing when the world is so unsettled? And then the three aspiring authors who are sharing their steps to being creative and to keep writing as well. So Mm. yeah, it's been an amazing experience to work with the other two ladies and we're we're hoping to get back to, to have physical events soon. Well, I mean, I think that it's such a great initiative. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested in that. So let's just finish off on talking briefly about The Bird in the Bamboo Cage. Beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, Thank you. Based on true stories, is that right? It is, yeah. So the book is set in China, 
at the start, well, 1941, so towards the, the start of World War II, and is inspired by this incredible true story I discovered about a group of school children and their teachers whose school is occupied by the Japanese army shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And ultimately, they are taken together as a group of around 120 children and teachers to a Japanese internment camp. So over the period of about five years, we see this unfolding horrendous situation that they find themselves in. But what I found so incredible when I was researching the story was how resilient, resourceful, hopeful they remained despite these circumstances that were completely out of their control and how the friendships developed between teachers and children because obviously the children were separated from their parents, many of whom were missionaries, so they were displaced all across the continent of China when this happened. And the children were as young as five and as old as 16, 17, so enormous changes going on in their lives and their teachers became not just their teachers but their, their parents, their guardian for this period of time. So it's been the most incredible event, period of history, location. Um, and I, I didn't know much about the war in the Pacific. I, I know a lot about the war in Europe. I knew a lot about the, the child evacuees taken from the cities in, in England, for example. But I, I didn't know about what have become known as these, these children who, whose childhoods were stolen from them um, and who lived many years separated from family, friends, and were taken under the care of their teachers. And it, it's, it's such a, as I say, an uplifting story of war. It's a very female story of war, which I don't think we've heard as often, and a very different perspective to that global event and a very human story. And I'm always in... Oh, I think it's timely. <laughs> I think it's really yeah. timely, Hazel. Yeah. I mean, because we're seeing how children are affected now by... Yeah. You know, and I, and, I, and I hope your children are well. But, you know, there is a lot of conversation about this is a life-changing period and, and some are coping better than others. But, you know, the conversation is about resilience, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's so strange to me. I inhabit other people's worlds from the past. That's my job. I research and I try to walk in their shoes and be authentic and understand their story. And I actually finished editing The Bird in the Bamboo Cage at the start of lockdown whilst I was going through my own world-changing event. And as I was editing, there were so many lines, emotions, sentiments in the book that suddenly made even more sense to me as a mother, as a, as a person living through this world-changing event. And absolutely what you say, that children have been so displaced from their life, from school, from sport, from family, from loved ones. Yeah. And, you know, we've very much felt that. I'm, we're here in Ireland. My family are in the UK. We haven't seen them since October last year. My grandmother actually passed away. Oh, I'm in sorry. May. Yeah. Thank you. She was, she had recently turned a hundred, which she was incredibly Whoa. proud of. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, amazing woman. Um, so we had had that milestone with her, but I was travel over for the funeral. Um, and those things are a once in a generation event. And I saw these parallels with my characters who were obviously based on real people and real events. And I feel absolutely what you've just said. It's so relevant to today. Mm. 
And I think we sometimes look at the past and feel it's very distant and it, it doesn't touch our lives. And I really feel that what we're experiencing now, there's, there's huge echoes between the experience of the children and teachers in the bird in the bamboo cage. And I, I think we can draw comfort from that. I think we often turn to the past because it's familiar when times are very different and difficult and the past can be comforting and reassuring mm. and that we do look for hope because people have endured these things before and they've overcome them. And as we're living through it ourselves, I think we naturally turn to the past to, to be comforted. So yeah, I mean, a strange set of circumstances that my book is being published right now when there are so many parallels. And I, I do hope that people will take some comfort from reading. Oh, I'm sure they will. those events. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beautiful and, book. And thank you. Thank really you. lovely. Um, Hazel, too. we're going to let you go now to get on with your day. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Another cup of coffee for me. Thank you. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.